Tuesday, February 7th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser and from Motley Fool Inside Value Joe Maker. Gentlemen, good to see you. Hello. We have got earnings from Coca Cola and BP, but we're going to start with Coinstar. Shares of Coinstar up more than 19% earlier today after the company reported some strong quarterly earnings, plus a couple of deals. They, uh, they bought NCR's DVD kiosk business which can't be that big because I didn't even know it existed. Um, and also, they're teaming up with Verizon to introduce a streaming video service in the second half of 2012. Joe, there's a lot to get to here. Let's just start with Coinstar itself. Uh, obviously, uh, a, a great day for Coinstar. Yeah, I mean, I think this deal with Verizon especially is really lucrative for them. And a perfect marriage of the brand that they have and the customer touchpoint at the physical locations with what Verizon offers. So a lot of people have been saying Coinstar should come out with their own digital offering. Well, the problem is they don't have anything remotely like the capabilities to do that, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. their two things are big box machines that have DVDs in them and big box machines that collect change. (laughs) Jumping from that to streaming digital content successfully is a huge gap. So they did the smart thing and reaching out and finding not only a partner who has a lot of experience negotiating you know with content providers mm-hmm. and has a lot of relationships uh, but you know who they can buddy up with and they're not effectively going to be competing with in any way I think it's a really smart move for them that saves them the trouble of trying to go after something they can't figure out on their own and Verizon have deep, has deep pockets to help them you know get the JB going. Jason, you're a Verizon Fios customer, so I'm I'm guessing you're liking this deal. I'm excited. I mean, for me as a consumer, it's another option. And so, I mean, that's what I've been arguing this for a long time, that, I mean, Netflix is stepping into a a realm here where we're going to see a lot more uh, competitors, a lot more options coming into play here, which is good for consumers, obviously. It's it's not as good maybe for, you know, the company's initially, I mean, because, you know, really, they're going to be competing for our attention. But uh, Fios, you know, I mean, I think Fios has about 5 million uh, subscribers now to the, to the broadband side of the business uh, out of about 15 million or so houses that they reach. Mm-hmm. So they're still really just in the stage of, of trying to, to gain more subscribers. And so I think, you know, Joe made an interesting point there that you've got Verizon, not only with the deep pockets and the relationships with like Hollywood producers, uh, but they're also the ones controlling a lot of that data transmission to begin with, which is certainly a leg up on on companies like Netflix, for example, that depend on you know the data trans uh, the data transmitters. Yeah, and I can't help but wonder if you're going to see Verizon at some point. You know, right now they'll throttle back your usage if you're using too much. So if you're a bandwidth hog, Verizon will cut back how much you can actually use, and they'll slow down your phone. Or your tablet. I wonder if they would do the same thing if you use their pay-for service. Maybe not. I mean, it could be an interesting little selling point. Uh, well, and some good options there, too, in the video side of it. I mean, we have Verizon, not only broadband, but TV offering as well. So it's very convenient to be able to go into that TV menu and just choose what you want to watch. And we probably average two movies or so a month just buying off of the Fios service. So it's, it's you know, I think another way to reach consumers that way. So the crowded uh, competitive landscape in in this industry is obviously getting more crowded now that Redbox, which was just the DVD you know kiosk in the supermarket, or, or certainly at, uh, where where I go to shop at the supermarket, there's a big Redbox there. <laughs> um, now they've got the streaming, um, and you've also got Dish. You've got the Dish Network and Blockbuster, which was their acquisition last year, um, and they, Hulu, and Hulu. Um, so I mean, if you're Netflix. 
Um, and Netflix, the certainly the stock has has had a great run of late. It's been a great. 2012 has been great for Netflix and its shareholders. But now that the landscape is getting even more crowded, um, who's their primary thre- threat? Who's the, who's the competitor that if Reed Hastings can wave a magic wand, he just does away with? Joe? Well, to add another, you know, we shouldn't forget Amazon Prime's digital offering either. That's true. So you've got five major players right there. I think realistically, most of these guys are going to fall by the wayside and we'll forget they existed in a few years. I think... Netflix is probably the one to be the most likely to survive out of that in this space. And the reason is they were the first player. They're focused. People understand the offering. It's ubiquitous across platforms. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, who would they knock off? You know, obviously Amazon if they could, but that, that I don't think happen. that's happening. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't think people get Prime for the video selection. I think they get it because of shipping and it's a nice kicker. I think Amazon's going to have to keep improving the quality of their video offerings to be competitive. But, you know, if they could kill someone, uh, a side note, I would probably say Google and YouTube. Uh, YouTube is such a monster deliverer of content and just eats up a ton of mindshare. Last year, they served up a trillion video plays. A trillion. That is not a typo. That's a lot of cats. Yes. That's a lot <laughs> so of cat videos. It's not directly competing, but it is a rival for Mindshare and for serving up you know, entertaining videos that people can get across platforms. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I think I would even look a little bit further uh, out and, and really you – know, the one that comes to mind here is Apple. And I mean, the only reason I say that is because you know, we have the Apple TV device at home, which integrates Netflix into the, to the scene very, very nicely. But at some point, we're going to see the ITV offering their articles out today talking about Apple negotiating with, with uh, Canadian content producers. Um, so I think that the long run, Apple, I think, holds a lot of the cards here in the way that they get into everybody's house, either via iPods or iPads or what one day will be, you know, the ITV. And so really, I think most of these companies are going to be looking for ways to develop relationships with Apple to be a part of that. Uh, so I think that's, you know, where Netflix is going to have to really keep its eye on for the long haul. By the way, Coinstar, which, as Joe pointed out, they have those machines that just count your change for you. Yep. Redbox now accounts for 86% of Coinstar's revenue. At some point, <laughs> don't they need to just change the name of their company? I would think, and plus, you got to figure those uh, – I don't know. Is Coinstar the company that actually supplies those machines to the banks, too? Because, I mean, the banks have all those as well. Uh, shares of Coca-Cola up very slightly today on fourth quarter earnings. Uh, Jason? Anything stand out in the report? It's Coca-Cola, you know. I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> the key to this business, I think, is distribution, which is why you see Coca-Cola and Pepsi as just the the all-out winners every yep. quarter. Uh, for Coca-Cola, it's no surprise to see them continue to, to do well. Uh, we're looking at a North American market, which is, I don't want to say saturated, but it's certainly more so than your international market. So they saw terrific growth in China. Uh, volume grew 10% in the fourth quarter and uh, 13% for the year, which made it nine out of the last 10 years that they've been able to grow China volumes by double digits or more. And they see more of that down the road here as well. What struck me was even when we saw input costs go up for Mm Coca-Cola, they were still able to expand uh, gross margin uh, almost a full percentage point, which essentially just means they're doing a better job selling more and passing on those costs to consumers. And I think that's a testament to the power of their brand as well as the power of their distribution model. Joe, anything surprise you in their report today? No, I mean, another great quarter. They bought back another couple billion dollars worth of shares last year. They said they're going to do it again this coming year. 
I think within the next month or two, you're probably going to see like an 8% dividend increase out of them, which should be nice. It's already yielding 2.7%. You know, realistically, they've been kicking butt in a big way for a while, and I think it boils down to the reinvestment in the brand. You know, and a lot of people wonder why Coke advertises so much. Like, yeah, we were talking about that. Um, uh, well, we talked yesterday about the Super Bowl ads. Right. <laughs> um, we didn't talk during the podcast about this, but you and I were, were discussing just the whole notion of – it seems to me like – and I'm a Coca-Cola shareholder and certainly a, a consumer of, of their products. But it seems to me like if any company can get away with not spending the $3.5 million on a 30-second ad, it's Coca-Cola. I mean, is there an adult walking around America who is not aware of Coca-Cola? Do they really need to do the brand advertising? Well, I would say yes, and it's exactly because of that that the business has performed so well. So if you look at Coke versus Pepsi, from 2006 to 2010, Coke spent about 9% of sales back on advertising. Mm -hmm. PepsiCo only did about 7%. And over the last five years, Coke's outperformed Pepsi by about 40 percentage points. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly why, but I think when you look at how Coke's been gaining share, that definitely has a lot to do with it. And Pepsi's going to have to work its way out of a hole by spending pretty heavily over the next couple of years. Yeah, and the other thing about that is if you look at Pepsi over the history here since 2005 or so, their net margin has just been consistently coming down. They've been really uh, getting hit with costs, and Coca-Cola's been able to hold the line a bit better with that. Uh, so they've been more profitable, and uh, I think that you know Joe makes a good point. They, they keep on getting their name out there and associating themselves with everything that we do. You know, the Super Bowl is one of the biggest things <laughs> that we witness as Americans every year, and you know, you, you pretty much – associate coca-cola with it every year too <laughs> uh pepsi reports their earnings on thursdays is net margin is that you know for someone who's looking at pepsi and either is a shareholder or thinking about being is net margin the key metric to look at i would say given what we've seen with coca-cola's earnings report today i would be focusing on margins in general certainly gro- gross margins and then to see how everything is trickling down to the bottom line on the net margin because that ultimately uh, net margin is is telling us how profitable an operation they're running which one do you like better over the next five years Coke or Pepsi? You know, that's tough. I would go with Coke. I do think there's a lot of potential for Pepsi, but when you look at the two companies, execution-wise, Coke is definitely outperforming, and the stock's selling for a little under 17 times forward earnings. Pepsi's selling for PepsiCo, I should say, and it's easy to forget that PepsiCo also owns Frito-Lay, which is a massively successful foods business. Sure. Uh, But that's selling for a little under 15 times earnings. You know, given the discrepancy there, I would happily pay a slight premium to get you know, the better, higher margin business that's executing so well. you agree with that, Jason? Slow and steady wins the race. I'm a Coke guy. BP's latest earnings beat expectations. Uh, BP also raised its dividend for the first time since it resumed payouts after the Deepwater Horizon tragedy. What do we think, Joe? I mean, when you look at, at BP's earnings, um, it's, you know, I was looking at a chart, and if you look at over the last two years, for someone who owned the stock two years ago, before the Deepwater Horizon tragedy, um, yes, it obviously took that huge dip, but it's it's only about 10% below where it was at that point. Yeah, well, the Deepwater Horizon incident is obviously a tragedy and the big gorilla in the room when it comes to their issues, but it's easy to kind of gloss over that they also have a lot of other environmental issues that have hurt the stock and the reputation over the past few years. And then they've got this whole issue with their joint venture in Russia that's just really been a back-and-forth, tenuous deal where they have basically been on the verge of losing out on all the reserves they have there over and over again over a period of years. And that's really hurt the stock, and reasonably so. I do think that if you're patient, you're going to see a lot of these issues kind of fade away over time. 
I think you're going to see that they're going to score some money from the contractors who related to the accident in the Gulf. You know, how much? I don't know. I don't think anyone could really project that right now and over what time. But you're going to see these things eventually change. You're going to see the stigma kind of fade away with investors, just like it did with Exxon and the Valdez. And eventually, I think it'll do well. But, you know, it's definitely a stock where you have to be patient. Jason, I don't own any oil stocks, but when I look at a chart over the last year of BP and Exxon and Chevron, it's essentially three parallel lines. They're all, they're all moving together. In that regard, does it ma- for someone who's looking to get into oil stocks, does it even matter which one of those three you buy? I mean, the argument can be made both ways. I would say it does matter because ultimately you're looking at, number one, a situation where BP, yes, they're still kind of trying to climb out of this hole, uh, clean their reputation up a little bit. And uh, I think we're going to be dealing with a litany of claims still to come in for, for many years. Uh, the thing that I look at when I see Exxon is not only a huge oil company, but Exxon's also the largest producer of natural gas in the world. And so to me, you know, natural gas prices are so low, they're, you know, the whole idea is almost being thrown to the curb at this point, which is exactly when I start getting interested in it. And so just given the potential that natural gas has in our society as an alternative energy and the fact that Exxon's such a big player in it, to me, I, I, I just would, I would look at Exxon as the superior option of, of those three that you mentioned. Is the big opportunity for BP, uh, I mean, when I hear you guys talking about the challenges they're facing, obviously there are some, some legal issues, but it seems like a, a big part of it for them is just their reputation. Is, is that the big opportunity, simply just um, m- improving their image, or are there material business opportunities um, that investors should look at? Well, they don't really need to improve their image with individuals. Um, people get confused when they think about big oil companies and how they make their money. BP doesn't make its money selling you gasoline. BP makes its money by pulling oil and gas out of the ground and selling it to people who ultimately end up refining it, and you get it later. So you're probably using BP gasoline without realizing it, ultimately. Um, they don't really have to do too much on the cons- on the consumer side. If anything, what they're doing on the consumer side is as much as just take care of their partners who are selling gasoline for them and establishing some political goodwill so they don't get wrecked over the coals. Do you have a favorite oil stock over the next few years, Jason? You know, I've I've been keeping a big eye on the natural gas ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, Exxon is a is a really a really interesting one. Just I think that natural gas is a trend that's going to be uh, taking hold here over over the next decade. So I, I think it's it's not a bad bet going with Exxon Mobil. You agree with that, Joe? Yeah, I think all three of them could be interesting. But Exxon's definitely the highest quality of the three in terms of its ability to execute. It's got the lowest cost reserves. I like its U.S. natural gas exposure, like Jason was saying, and Kind of on a side beat, I read some research this week where the guys at Deutsche Bank threw out this theory that Exxon isn't backing off its natural gas production right now in an effort to oversupply the market and take out marginal <laughs> players. And that is so beautiful. If you're, I mean, that's how they play. Yes. They play Size hardball at Exxon. But, I mean, basically, you've got a lot of marginal guys who sign these leases at you know, really aggressive terms back in the natural gas boom. And now you've got hedges that they signed back then rolling off. Spot prices are low. Uh, Debt covenants are coming due. And before you know it, they're going to be, you know, folding up shop and 
That so, plays well if you have deep pockets and you're a potential acquirer. So rather than backing off production, Exxon just keeps status quo and just methodically puts marginal players out of business? Well, that's a theory going around. <laughs> I think it's probably a good one. It's a reasonable theory. <laughs> yeah. And in the short term, that's great You know, if you're a consumer because it means you might have low natural gas prices for a little while longer. But in the long term, you know, the rationale behind that is that they would take marginal players out so that they hurt production, and in the long term, they end up making more money. All right. Joe Maker, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Creer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.